The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. I wanted to share with you tonight some thoughts about seeing things clearly. We refer to our meditation practice as vipassana, which means insight or clear seeing. And that's a very foundational, a very basic teaching understanding of the practice. I would like for us to expand it just a little bit and say, see things completely, clearly, but also completely. Because if we don't see the full picture, we may not be seeing it very clearly. So we talk about bare attention, giving bare attention to whatever it is that we are doing or paying attention to. Just the noticing, just the attention, without all the extraneous um, stuff that the mind can do, without all the interpretation and the likes and don't likes and etc., etc. Just what are we seeing as clearly as possible? So somebody posed the question to me a few weeks ago, how can we see things clearly when we all see things through our own lens, through our own um, ideas, biases, etc.? And I, I thought that's a very good question. How do we see things clearly when we know that we all have our own filters, <laughs> our own lens through which we see things? So the short answer, or the quick answer, is to be aware that we have these biases, to be aware that we are seeing things through a particular filter. We're not wrong. It's not wrong or bad to do that. It's how things are. We've all been conditioned since we were very young by families, by schools, by churches, by communities, the culture. And so we can't help but have biases or different perspectives. The important thing is that we see them, <laughs> that we become aware of what those biases are. Because if we don't, if we're not aware, then we accept them as truth. And we can hang on to them so tightly, believing that they're true. And they may be true, but they may not be also. And sometimes when we hold too tightly, it's very, very difficult to acknowledge 
that our ideas may not be true or may be only a piece of the truth. So we notice our interpretations. We notice when we are adding something more to whatever we're seeing or whatever we're experiencing. I like to use the example of a flower. There is one. (laughs) Um, Can we look at the flower and just see the color, the form, without all the addition of what kind it is, do we like it or not, how come we have that one, or whatever, whatever the mind would come up with. Can we just see it? That's bare attention. Or the bell. That's an example often used. We call it a bell, But what is it really? It's a metal bowl, round bowl. It's our interpretation, it's our perspective that says bell. And again, that's not wrong. It's just that somebody else might see that and not call it bell. That's our perspective are biased because this is what we use as a bill. And so beginning to notice how we interpret things, what we bring to what we are actually seeing. Our, our um, tendency to label and categorize. We're very quick to categorize, aren't we? People or events or whatever. And usually that kind of categorizing um, is a stereotype or just a piece of the truth, not the full picture. Can we notice the feeling tone. That is, do we find something pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral? Because when we notice that, then we notice how our reaction is driven by that. If we like it, then we want to hold on. We may not, we may want more. If we don't like it, we want to push it away. We don't want want it. If it's neutral, that might be good. Can we notice our judgments? Often, um, we have so many, or they come so quickly, we don't even notice them. And we live in a culture, I think, that often supports our judgments. We're supposed to be judgmental. (laughs) We're supposed to, uh, 
you know, call things out and be very judgmental about them. But in this practice, we learn <clears throat> to set aside our judgments, to see things more clearly as they are without the judgment. And that can be pretty challenging sometimes because we're so used to judging. The thing is, when we do, when we judge, particularly if we judge something right or something wrong, and many times that's considered very important, right? That we see something as right and something else as wrong. When we do that, we often then hold very tightly and sometimes very self-righteously to what is right. And we can be very blaming and very dismissive of what we consider wrong. Now, as I say things like this, people um, begin to get uncomfortable and think, well, isn't it important to be judgmental. Isn't it important to see what is right and what is wrong? And what I would say instead is I'm not suggesting that we set aside our discernment or our discriminating wisdom. That is very important. But that's different from judgment. That's different from right, wrong, good, bad. We can discern if something is harmful or unskillful. And that's the way we look at things in this practice. Do they lead to suffering or do they lead away from suffering? Rather than this right, wrong, good, bad way of organizing the world. So... Seeing things more clearly or, and were more completely can lead to a greater understanding. And understanding can lead to compassion. So understanding or compassion does not mean condoning. Just because we can understand why somebody might do something doesn't mean that we think it's okay. It might not be okay. It might be very not okay. But we might be able to understand how that person came to that position. You know, we talk about, Thich Nhat Hanh especially does, but we acknowledge in Buddhist practice that we all have within us the seeds of great compassion and wonderful acts of generosity and kindness. And we all also have the seeds of great destruction, of doing horrible things. We don't like to recognize that. We don't like to own that. We like to think that, oh, I couldn't possibly. I couldn't possibly do that. How many times have any of us been guilty of of thinking, I can't imagine. I can't understand why somebody would do that. 
I can't imagine. For me, it would be why someone could treat a dog in a certain way. But what does that do? That sets me apart. That makes a we-they situation. I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't treat my dog that way or my daughter or whatever, whatever it might be. That's a terrible person that does. And we have this separation and this holier-than-thou, this exalted I. The reality is that given a certain set of circumstances, conditions, any one of us is capable of unimaginable behavior. Again, we don't like to acknowledge that. But that's the reality. Imagine if you were tortured unbearably for some length of time. You might be capable of killing, right? It happens. It happens. You might not want to. You might not think you're capable of it. But it could happen. So to realize that, to realize that the capacity for great harm is within each of us, it's humbly. It's also realistic. And it's a way of helping us to practice diligently. So we practice developing generosity and kindness, loving kindness, and compassion and all the paramis, and etc., as a way of watering, we might say, or nurturing those, those qualities that we value, that we want to put forth, that we want to develop in ourselves and give to the world. And we don't water... <laughs> We don't nurture. We don't give any uh, credence or, or attention. Well, attention we might, but not, not anything to support those qualities that are unskillful, that lead to harm or lead to suffering. So I'm reminded of a story um, in one of Thich Nhat Hanh's books about how during the Vietnam War, a soldier, a, Vietnam, a Vietnamese soldier, came to Thich Nhat Hanh. This was when he was still in Vietnam. And very upset, crying, because an American soldier 
had spit on him. And Thich Nhat Hanh, as you can imagine, held him and allowed him to cry, be upset, and express, you know, whatever he needed to. And he was just very tender and gentle with him. And when the soldier got through, Thich Nhat Hanh said to him, Can you imagine if you were an American young boy who grew up in whatever it seems to me he said Philadelphia, but it could be any any city, and you were taught that people like us were I always get confused. What's the word? Gooks. <laughs> I always confuse it with geek. <laughs> we're gooks. Or were less than human. Or were somehow disparaged. You too might spit on somebody like us. And that story is always so powerful for me. But it says, you know, there is more to anything than we think there is. If we understand where someone is coming from, we might have more compassion for what is happening we might see things a little more clearly. I want to emphasize because people always think that to understand or to see the whole picture, um, to forgive, to be compassionate, is to condone what happened. And it's not. We can be understanding we can be very compassionate without condoning what happened. What happened may be very unskillful, may be harmful, may lead to great harm. And we're not condoning that. We're not dismissing it. We're not saying, oh, that's okay. We need to accept everything. It's not dismissive. It's not indifferent. It is seeing the wider picture. It is seeing, we could say, reality. Seeing all of it, not just a piece of it. So about the time that this question was posed to me, how do we see with um, the fact that we all have our own lens, it happened to be around the time, about a month ago, around the time that the um, uproar about the separating families at the border was happening. And uh, there was a lot of editorials and et cetera in the paper. And there was this one letter to the editor that I thought was so powerful. And the title is, This is Not Who We Are, This is Exactly Who We Are. This is written by a uh, philosophy professor at Evergreen. And he says, I keep hearing, this isn't who we are. 
Sorry, but this is exactly who we are. That's pretty challenging, isn't it? This is who we were when we engaged in chattel slavery. When children were considered property at birth, bought and sold at will, without regard to family relationships. This is who we were when indigenous children were sent to boarding schools, church institutions, or the child welfare system to kill the Indian and save the man. Research the history of the Indian Child Welfare Act. This is who we are today when we fail to see the humanity of those begging for their lives at our doorstep and we rip apart these families in hopes of deterring the problem. We have never confronted the atrocities we have committed, not owned up to them, stared them in the face, nor truly repented. And until we do so, we'll keep repeating history and repeat the lie. This is not who we are. And of course, he's talking about we as as a country, as a culture. But I think the same could be said for us as individuals. Do we own up to what we have done? Very often not, because often it goes, it's a, a cognitive dissonance that goes against how we see ourselves. And it's very hard to acknowledge something that doesn't fit with our view of ourselves. But if we don't, then we're in denial. And denial does not free us. And denial does not allow us to change. In fact, it probably encourages or enhances us to do more of the same. So the importance, both individually and collectively, of acknowledging, like the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa after apartheid, how powerful that was, where people were allowed to come and be honest and acknowledge what they had done how they had harmed others or what they had done in the name of whatever. (laughs) And if they were honest and truly, completely honest, they were not punished. They were forgiven. They were let go. I thought that was so powerful. The power of confession, (laughs) the power of acknowledging what has happened helps to free us. And if we don't, 
we often then continue in the same vein, as this professor is suggesting. If we as a country don't acknowledge what we've done, then we'll continue to repeat it and believe this is not who we are. But there it is. We have both, right? As a country, we've done incredibly wonderful things. We've been incredibly generous. And look at our history. We've been incredibly violent and done unspeakable things to people. And if we don't accept that about ourselves, if we don't acknowledge that, we may continue to do the same thing. So, so we practice to develop those skillful qualities within us, those qualities of compassion, and loving kindness and generosity and etc. But we're not immune or blind to what's going on around us. We are aware of the circumstances in which we live, the circumstances in our lives, the circumstances in our in our um, area, in our tradition, in our schools, etc., etc. So that we're not separating ourselves. We're not seeing ourselves as so pure and others as whatever we may say, as being so terrible. We see our conditioning. We see our beliefs. I'd like to say we see through them. We see that they are just beliefs or just ideas or just conditioning. And sometimes that's very hard for people to hear. They don't think that they are just ideas. They are real. They are the truth. They are, because we believe that it's true. But it's not. If we look at our lives, how many beliefs do we have that may or may not be true? We've learned them somewhere. We've learned them from family or school or whatever. That doesn't make them true. It makes them an idea, a belief, a view, some of which might be helpful and some of which might not. So let me pause for a few minutes 
and hear from you. Questions, reactions, concerns? noticed how we compartmentalize um, our treatment of different life forms. We might be very caring, loving, helpful, compassionate, tolerant of our friends, family. Uh, We have a tendency to be tribal. And so people who are like us, (laughs) we're really nice to and then we can uh, quite unthinkingly perhaps be very cruel to others and it washes over us. So I'm thinking of farm animals. Um, so, uh, mm-hmm. so it's a dichotomy that's a little hard for me to accept. Mm-hmm. Right. I think it's hard for most of us to accept, and that's why we tend to (laughs) ignore it, deny it, push it away. It's also true that many very wonderful people, teachers, who have done wonderful things also have done very unskillful things. Buddhist teachers who have been wonderful teachers and (laughs) have sexually abused their students or uh, been alcoholic or whatever. Um, For me, a great example is Aung San Suu Kyi, whom you may know of from Burma or Myanmar. Aung San Suu Kyi was given the Nobel Peace Prize. I don't remember what year, but uh, many years ago. For her work in, in Burma, she worked tirelessly for democracy and human rights in Burma. And she was honored. She was beloved by the West, especially Western Buddhists. And... She became the de facto leader of Burma. Burma. She couldn't be elected, but um, but she was the person that was elected. Essentially, turned over the running of the country to her. And since then, we've learned of the incredible. treatment of the Rohingya people in Burma or Myanmar that apparently has gone on for many years but became in the last few years much worse horrible horrible things I've seen on TV and read about and heard about and I've been asked how can Buddhists (laughs) Myanmar is a Buddhist country how can Buddhists do this 
it's a hard one to answer. And it's hard to understand Aung San Suu Kyi, who has not spoken out about this. In fact, she's denied it. Or she said there's no proof or something like that. (laughs) And those of us that have admired her have gone, what? What? (laughs) What has happened? I've read um, in Buddhist publications several uh, possibilities or several, several ideas what might be going on. I don't know. I don't know what's going on with her. It could be strategy. It could be that she's scared to death for her life, although that didn't seem so <laughs> to bother her so much a few years ago. So I don't know. But it's another example of the complexity of us human beings and how we are capable of such incredible generosity and wonderfulness and at the same time we're capable of incredible harm and hurtfulness when I read this letter to the editor I would have added a couple things like the internment of Japanese during World War II and the dropping of the bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Incredible atrocities. And a few years ago, I'm not sure who, was it Obama? One of our presidents was going to apologize. (gasps) There was such an uproar. How could he apologize for that? Because our story is that that helped to bring the war to an end and that many more people would have been killed. I don't know. I don't know if that's true. I've read many things since that that probably isn't true, but I say that's our story because that's the story we as Americans tell ourselves. We had to do it. And look at the incredible harm we did. Not just to the people that died, but for generations following. Is that something we can own up to? Acknowledge and own. Again, because if we don't, we might do it again. If we acknowledge it, if we acknowledge the reality of the atrocities, that's the first step in not doing it again. Same with us as individuals. When we acknowledge what we have done, that is the first step toward not repeating that behavior. 
you know, in Buddhism, the end does not justify the means. We are taught to make every step ethical or um, valuable or so it's not it's not okay to do something horrendous because the end result will be better we need to be mindful and very careful every step of the way and we're encouraged to let go of the end result because we can't know we can't know what will happen but we might develop some trust that if every step we take is ethical and skillful and not harmful that the result will be for the good and not the ill or the destruction. Anybody else? Mm-hmm. I think I, I heard once that uh, that we're all paying for um, what we did, like when we took this land from the other, we killed a lot of people and took this land, right? Are we still paying the price right now? Like everyone who's living on this land? What do you think? I, I don't know. I mean, it feels, it doesn't feel as good in America as other countries when I feel energy. Um, I don't know in what way we're paying the price, perhaps. Certainly, it's a part of our history. And I think more and more it's coming to light. It's being uh, talked about. It's being acknowledged. Um, You know, you lead to the question of karma. (laughs) And what are the results? What are the fruits or the effects of such unskillful behavior? Certainly there are results. We can't always know exactly what they are. But probably in some way we are. just like slavery you know as a culture we are still paying the price of slavery we we still are very racially divided in many ways were you going to say something else (laughs) I was just going to ask what karma is but I think I got the answer (laughs) well Karma is quite complicated. <laughs> I'll just say briefly that karma, karma means action. Or um, the Buddha is reported to have said it means intention. 
typically what we're talking about is the fruit of karma or the result of karma, the result of our actions. And um, it's very complex. The Buddha said, you go crazy trying to figure it out. But it's important that we recognize that our actions do matter, that they have an effect. Maybe now, maybe down the road, maybe maybe another lifetime if we're talking about rebirth. Um, For me, it's enough just to know that our actions matter. It makes a difference what we do and what we don't do. There's one teacher who died recently, Ruth Dennison, who says karma means you don't get away with nothing. (laughs) we can look in our own lives right and see the results of unskillful things we've done and some may be quite obvious others may not be so obvious karma is not just negative Karma is not just unskillful actions. And this is, this is what the Buddha contributed. Karma is also skillful, helpful actions. And probably you can see in your lives, as I can in mine, that when I am acting from a place of compassion, of caring, when I, am, when I am practicing the qualities that, that I admire, generosity and kindness and caring, and etc., it seems to come back. <laughs> it seems that my life is more smooth, is full of gratitude, appreciation, etc. And when I see that, of course, it's motivation to continue that kind of behavior and not allow myself to fall into maybe sloppy or unskillful behavior, which can happen. Anybody else? Thank you. I was I was just gonna add it's it's on so much of a smaller scale than sort of what you were talking about, but I have noticed just I guess about where I'm at in my practice that um, just the reality of how much I'm not correctly interpreting what's happening around me. And it it can be a bit of a wake-up call, but even yeah. just this morning, someone sent me an email, and I I just misinterpreted it, and, and something went back. And thankfully, the person who received it was a little bit more evolved than me. And, you know, the response that came back, allowed me to see how much I misinterpreted what was said and I just like I had to step back for a minute and just 
look at that because not just what was said in the content of the email, but how I just spun a whole reality about what this person might have been thinking when they wrote that. And um, it, it really is a wake-up call, and then it um, really changes the way I would interact with people. But it's hard because even though I know it's happening, it still feels real. <laughs> yes. That's right. That's right. Yeah, thank you for that. Thank you for bringing it back to the <laughs> individual. Yes. And that's, that's the first step, to, to notice that wake-up call and realize every time. And no matter how many times I realize it, there's a habit of my mind, and my mind goes there. It's usually catastrophic. And it never, I have to remind myself, it never ever once has been true. <laughs> but every time, you know, I don't get a response when I think I should, oh, I wonder what's happened. Oh, I wonder if she got sick or, you know, never, never happens. But that's the habit of my mind. Fortunately, now um, it still does that, but I don't believe it. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Will it ever stop? I don't know about that, but at least I know better than to believe. Well, remember, forget, let's check it out. Let's see <laughs> if that's really it or not. So the, the one last thing I wanted to talk a little bit about, and you set the stage, is personal transformation. Yeah, a little topic. <laughs> but so often we want to change the world, right? We don't like this, we don't like that, we think this is atrocious, and on and on. And yet, how do we do that? How do we change the world? Only by changing what's in here. And no matter how many times we hear that, it's still hard to believe that that's, that's what we need to do. We need to transform this heart. And of course, when we do that, it begins to transform the world because then what we put forth is, is much more wholesome, much more skillful, much more compassionate, much more loving. And that's how things begin to change. And so it's not just a trite phrase. It's not just um, a new age <laughs> idea. It really is the way things change. We start right here. And hopefully that's one reason we all come to IMC because we know that it begins within each of us. It actually, it begins and ends within each of us. As long as we're focused out there, it's not going to do it. And we set up this separation, this we, they, 
way of seeing things. And when we begin transforming our hearts, so we become more accepting, more compassionate, more generous, then that's what we offer to the world. You maybe have heard the saying that Buddhist practice is like swimming upstream because so often the practices that we value and that we put into practice go against the grain of our culture. They're not supported necessarily by the culture or sometimes they're verbally supported but not in practice. And so when we're able to actually practice compassion, practice seeing things clearly, seeing things more completely, seeing and understanding the whole picture, you know, people get it. They may not verbalize it. And they may not really totally understand, but they do get it. They do see how we are. And I have had people say to me, I'm learning a different way of living. I can't take credit for all of that, of course. But if I'm an example That's a piece of it. That's helpful. And if each of us are examples, that's how things change. Each of us lives the the life, the, um, the ethical life, the compassionate life, that we practice here. We take that out into the world and it does make a difference. People notice or they feel it. <laughs> they sense it. And if, if we can uh, hold to our principles, not, not so tightly that we're fighting others, that's <laughs> that becomes unskillful. That becomes a problem. But we hold with integrity the understanding that we have and the way we want to be. Then that's what we put out in the world. And it's no small feet. It has an impact. It does make a difference. I can't help but think of Gil. I don't know how many of you know Gil very well. I've known him for a long, long time. And Gil embodies what he teaches. And if you're around him much, you get it. You get it the way he responds to people, the way he is in meetings, the way he is in classes, etc. 
you know this man is unique. And that's why he has such a huge following online as well as <laughs> right here. People get it. This man is for real. And this man cares. He really cares. So I find him worth emulating. It's <laughs> a very, very valuable role model. Um, and that doesn't mean I haven't disagreed with him. I have. <laughs> but that disagreeing is not does not take away from any of the value. I mean, we all can disagree. That's that's not a big deal. Anyway, it's just about nine. Is there a last comment or question? Yeah. And as I hear you talk about us and them and that separation that we create, which we create every day, everywhere, uh, as, as much as we try not to and we come <laughs> here and we practice, I, I think of the relationship that I have with the, the homeless community that we, we come across every day. I travel to San Francisco for work and I, I just come across and pass a lot of people and I... There's a lot of compassion in the heart and in the spirit and the mind, but bridging that me and them feeling is, I'm very challenged by it. I just don't know how, mm-hmm. how to find that bridge in, in a way that makes peace in me, but also in a way that I can somehow engage with them in, in, in some meaningful way. Mm-hmm. So that my everyday interaction is not one of avoiding eye contact right. or looking down or right. moving right. to the other side when they come by. Right, right. And that's one of the things I was going to say. One of the things we can do is just to acknowledge, just to say hello. Um, it doesn't have to mean giving money, but just acknowledge their presence. I heard it again on the radio just in the last couple of days that <clears throat> homeless people often feel invisible. They feel that, and part of it is like you say, because so often we turn our head or we walk by, we're uncomfortable. Um, and what they most want is our acknowledgement that they're, they're humans, <laughs> you know? And, um, and so since I learned that many years ago, I have made it a practice. I don't typically give money. I give to other <laughs> organizations, you know. Um, but I do my best to nod and say hello. Uh, it happened just recently. There was a man on, on the uh, divider, you know. And I can't remember exactly what his sign said, but it was something like, like we are all human or we are all valuable or something like that. And I happened to stop and I put my window down and I said, you're absolutely right. And he said, you are only the second person all day that has acknowledged what my sign said. 
I was surprised, you know. Never, I didn't give him money, uh, you know, nothing like that. But it was a very, very valuable exchange. Very nice. I felt it, and I'm quite sure he felt it. Just, just an acknowledgement, you know, of what he was standing there for. Yeah. Sometimes if a homeless person is sitting on the sidewalk and they have a cat or a dog, I can't resist. (laughs) I go up and talk to the cat or dog and talk to them. And I I think we can't underestimate the value of that, just the acknowledgement that this is a person. And the other thing I was going to say was... um, I think this is another way we can acknowledge that it could be us. Given a certain turn of events, given certain conditions, the richest of us could be on the street. It can happen like that. And we don't believe it, you know. That's partly why it's kind of this we, they, that would never happen to me. As a Zen teacher once said, look again. (laughs) Yeah, and that acknowledging that that could happen to us, that could be me, is a way of bridging that gap. Yeah, thank you for that. Okay, well, we probably should... (laughs) bring this to an end. If anybody else has comments or questions, I'll be here for a little bit.